Let us now turn for our instruction to the book of Revelation and the 14th chapter. The book of Revelation and the chapter 14. This is the word of God, the word of Almighty God. Come, let us hear his precious, holy, infallible, inerrant and sacred word together. Book of Revelation, chapter 14, commencing the verse 1, let us hear. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with the harps, and they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with woman, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God. And give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth, and the sea, and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Well, we'll end the public reading of God's holy word there. And we pray that the Lord will add his own blessing to the reading of his word. Let us draw near by faith. Pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to thee this night, we thank thee that we may come through thy dear Son. And may ask, O Lord, of thy Spirit, the Spirit of thy Son, for God is one and God is Spirit, and God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the blessed three, the three in one, and the one in three. 
eternally God. We come to thee, O Lord, and we pray that thou wilt speak to our hearts, thou wilt help us all. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that glory may be ascribed to thy name, and there may be tremendous and everlasting good done for our souls here tonight as we feed upon thy word. Help this poor stammering tongue, this forgetful mind. O Lord, I pray that thou will come in for me and be gracious to me, O Lord, as I cast myself upon thy kind arms. As a poor and helpless worm, I cast myself upon thee in Christ. I ask, Father, for the good of men's souls, that I may be a blessing now to my hearers and speak a word to the glory of thy name. We ask in the Saviour's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, dear congregation, I would like to turn your very prayerful attention to the words that I read to you earlier in your hearing there in the book of Revelation and the 14th chapter. We continue our studies now after have come away for a few weeks as we've had a church members meeting and a Trinitarian Bible Society meeting recently, but we resume our studies through this last book of the Bible. Of course, the Bible is one book, but of course, all given by inspiration of God, and this book is unique in the sense that it is given It is the word of Christ, but it is given through the angel to John and for the churches, the things that shall shortly come to pass. Now, many people have said it is the revelation of John, but it is not. It is the revelation, verse 1, of Jesus Christ, which he gave unto him, that is to John, to show to the servants. So the Lord speaks by his angel to John, and there is also a direct word from Christ. We know to the seven letters or the seven epistles, which are in the book of the Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And as we've seen in our previous studies, the book can be divided into seven cycles. And of course, I've provided for you some helpful, I trust, sheets laying out the various divisions of the cycles. And we're now in the fourth cycle, if you remember. And uh, these cycles, as we come to them once again, it's like seeing the same journey, but from different perspectives, from different vantage points. I've used the illustration many times. Uh, For instance, from here to my house, it's roughly three-quarters of a mile, perhaps not even that. And if I took a picture of one thing, all the stop signs or all the trees, one journey, and then took a picture of all the houses, another journey, it's the same journey, but you're seeing it from different angles, and so on. You get the picture. These cycles are, as we've said, synchronous, what we call symbolic, symbolic parallelism. Each cycle as you've noticed in your sheets, ending with the saints glorified in heaven, with a picture in heaven. And if you remember, subsequent or previous, should I say, to our last study, in chapter 12, chapter 12 began 
this fourth cycle. Really what we see from the fourth cycle onwards to the last cycle are things in the unseen world, spiritual things. There is a war, as we've noticed before, isn't there? There are powers of darkness. In fact, Paul speaks about this, doesn't he, in Ephesians 6. He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, while we see many activities in this world, we've got to remember that there is one behind it, the great archenemy, Satan, who indeed is a great force to be reckoned with, far more powerful than us, and he works through the world, as we saw. Remember in chapter 12, as I said, we are seeing things now in the unseen world, and everything that we saw in chapter 11 and chapter, sorry, chapter 12 and chapter 13, again, it's symbolic language. Remember, we thought of the dragon who represents Satan. We're told that in chapter 12, the old serpent. And then there is the woman who he persecutes, who is the woman, the church, the bride of Christ. And then we're told that he not only persecutes the church and always has, Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman, enmity between his seed and the seed of the woman, but also after Christ comes into the world. And if you just turn back there to Revelation 12, 5, and she, that is the woman, brought forth a man-child. Of course, we know who that is. Last time we studied it, it is Christ who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Well, that's where he is now. Reminds us of Psalm 2, that he will dash the nations as with a rod of iron. And uh, the Jews thought he would be made king. Remember, as he went into Jerusalem, they wanted to make him king. Hosanna. One minute they're crying Hosanna, and the next minute crucify him. Many had turned against him. Many that were crying Hosanna actually put him to death. The time he fed the 5,000 and even the 4,000, they wanted to take him, make him king. He was a king. Indeed, he even said it to Pilate. But he was crowned with thorns. Thorns is a picture of the curse. He had to take the curse of his people. He had to suffer the just for the unjust to bring us to God. He was taken up, Revelation 12, 5, unto God, to his throne. He is now sat down at the right hand of the Father. But the church, the woman, notice Revelation 12, 6, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God. They should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. That's 1260 days. As we've said many times, 42 months, three and a half years. All of those descriptions 
are descriptions of the gospel age. 1260 days, of course, is 42 months, three and a half years. It's all symbolic of the gospel age. And we have the same number appear in Revelation 13, where we saw two beasts. One beast come out of the sea. Of course, we saw from the book of Daniel and also from Isaiah that the sea represents the world the waters, the nations, and even here, people from all nations. The sea represents nations, and of course, the nations that can get no rest, and that man has no rest. He's searching for something, isn't he, while he has no God. He makes himself to be God, or he makes something else to be God, and he has no rest. There's an empty void in a man's heart, so that he is as the troubled sea constantly casting up mire. Well, the sea persecutes the saints upon the earth. We're told again, 42 months in chapter 13. Now, the first beast, as we saw last time, and I'm just giving a little overview before we come to chapter 14 here, and we're only going to look at five verses this evening. Remember in chapter 13, the first beast that comes out of the sea. There are two beasts. There's one, sea, one beast that comes out of the sea. It is the world and the political leaders of the world. Men vote, don't they? Those leaders into power. Nations vote in their leaders. A leader is often typical or, or resembles the people of the land. And... Uh, We get our interpretation, as we saw, from the book of Daniel. Remember the book of Daniel and the 10th chapter. Because that beast, that first beast, it is bear-like, it is leopard-like, and so on, lion-like. Well, all of those symbols there in that beast are seen in that first beast. And in the book of Daniel, if you remember, it represented the nations and the leaders of those nations, world empires. In other words, the world and the world's empires will always be against the church, against the bride of Christ. You notice there in chapter 13, the first beast persecutes the church, the saints. For how long? For the entire gospel age. But the first beast gets its power from the second beast, who is lamb-like was a face as a lamb and has two horns, signifying power. It does everything and is fueled, shall we say, by the first beast or by the second beast who encourages it. We said, didn't we, that the second beast symbolized religious persecution. And uh, that will often come from religious quarters. The world, the first beast, will persecute by the second beast under the guise of religion and professedly true religion, but it's not. We think of Mary, Queen of Scots. We think of Rome, who fueled all of that. We think of the Huguenots, tens of thousands persecuted and even fled to our shores here in England. 
on part of Suffolk that I go to, you can find little hamlets, little villages, where there are large settlements of Huguenots out there. Also, if you go down to Rochester, you'll see some remnants there of that. Well, it's been throughout the ages, the church has been terribly persecuted. Look at verse 5 of Revelation 13. And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things, and blasphemies and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And so we saw in Daniel 10 and also in Daniel 7, those four creatures, bear-like, lion-like, that beast coming also out of the sea described there. And that's where we get the meaning from. We're not interpreting these things through our own understanding. These things are revealed through Scripture elsewhere. Now, as we arrive in chapter 14, notice in verse 1, and this is meant to serve to encourage the church during this gospel age, that while these two beasts religious persecution and the world are going on. Christ reigns. Notice verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion, and with him an hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. The lamb. Well, we know who this is. It's quite straightforward, isn't it? This is the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb that was slain even before the foundation of the earth. We want to see four things tonight as we look at verses 1 to 5. 1 to 5. First of all, you'll notice John sees a Lamb. And really, this is the central focus I suppose, of this first verse. And then Mount Sion, we'll consider that. What is Mount Sion? And then the 144,000. Well, we've seen them before, haven't we, in chapter 7. And then fourthly, the Father's name on their forehead. So we'll consider these four features of verses 1 to 5. Well, the first thing, and the central focus, as I said, of these verses is the Lamb. Verse 1, And I looked, and lo, a Lamb stood on the Mount Sion. Remember when John the Baptist saw the Lord Jesus Christ coming. You just turn there to John chapter 1, and the verse 29. He says, it says there, John writes, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then in the verse 35, again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So it should be unmistakable. John says twice, He is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb that the church has been looking for all the years. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, as you know, lambs were shed, and the high priest once a year would sprinkle the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant seven times, sprinkle 
with the blood of the Lamb on behalf of the people. It was, of course, all symbolic of what Christ would ultimately do. God would meet sinners there. And here, in the midst of Mount Zion, is the Lamb. The Lamb of God even slain before the foundation of the world. If you just look at the previous chapter, Revelation 13, 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names they worship the beast, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. People in this world do not worship Christ. And if they do not worship Christ, their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. It's what we're told here. They worship the beast. But those who worship Christ, they worship the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Well, what does that mean? Well, it was predetermined by Almighty God, the means whereby he would save his people, whereby he would deal with the sin of his people, showing forth his justice and his mercy at Calvary. The justice of God was seen as God spared not his son, but as he delivered him up to judgment. What was God doing there at Calvary? The father was pouring out his wrath upon his dear son. But of course, this was all planned before the foundation of the world. But this lamb, I must remind you, is also the lion of the tribe of Judah, isn't he? And he will judge all men. The great almighty conqueror, as we've seen already in Revelation 6, who has a crown there. But in Revelation 19, he has many crowns upon his head. He is altogether victorious, and we see him here on Mount Sion. It's a tremendous picture, you see, for the saints who are persecuted by these two beasts. And behind these two beasts is the great dragon, Satan. Of course, we're not to look for some animal coming out the Indian Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean that we think some great creature is going to come out. It's symbolic, isn't it? You know, some people have had nightmares about monsters coming out the sea. And some people like sort of imagery like that because it's like a it's like a film, it's like a movie, isn't it? The church today sadly wants something more, not satisfied with mere symbolism. They want entertainment. But these are very simple and basic truths, symbols that we ought to be able to understand. The sea is the people, the waters is the people. And the people are stirred up by a false church to go and to war against the bride, to war against the saints. But here we have in Revelation 14, we have a picture of Christ and his people on Mount Zion, a glorious people. You see, it's right in the midst of all that is taking place in this world. And the Lord wants his people to see, I am with you. I am with you even to the end of the age. 
That's the picture here. Didn't the Lord Jesus say that? Lo, I am with you. I will not leave you comfortless, but I will send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Spirit of Christ is Christ. God is Spirit. And he walks amidst his lampstand. We, we had that, didn't we, in Revelation chapter 2 to chapter 3. We're told right at the beginning of the book of the Revelation how Christ walks amidst the lampstands. And here he is again. But we'll see an interesting feature here. We want to look at this Mount Sion. And uh, it's important. Some people get very confused here. Here he is, he's standing. You notice the posture of the Lord here. He's not toppled. Despite Satan and these two beasts raging, and Satan who's stirring up the nations and stirring up religious persecution, Christ stands, and I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion. Now again, We're not to take this as the literal Mount Sion that is in Jerusalem. Of course, Jerusalem later became known as Mount Sion, even earthly Jerusalem, because it is on a mount there. But we're not to take it as a literal Mount Sion here. And there are many people that do this. And uh, they think that when Christ comes, he's going to appear again in the temple, And we're going to go back to animal sacrifice. It's blasphemous. Many holding even to the premillennial position hold to this. And many well-known men, I won't name them, but many do follow their teaching. I think it's ludicrous. Ludicrous. How can sinful men in this world behold a glorified Christ upon earth who is omnipotent. Well, we're not to take this in the literal sense. That's absurd. But we take it in the sense that indeed the Apostle Paul shows us. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, I want you to see there. And while you're turning to Hebrews chapter 12, let me just give you the context the early Hebrew Christians, the Jewish Christians, they were under great persecution. And this is, by the way, just before the destruction of the temple. The temple's going to be destroyed at 70 AD. And, uh, of course, we know Paul, by the Spirit, writes to the Hebrew Christians. And uh, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and the verse 18. Hebrews 12, verse 18. We read, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be taken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so, much as a beast touched the mountain, it be stoned, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart, 
And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now, what mount was that? That was Mount Sinai. We know that in uh, Exodus chapter 19 and 20. Now notice, where have you come? He's writing here to persecuted, early persecuted Christians. But ye are come unto Mount Sion, and unto the city of the living God. Now notice, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. But you say, Paul, how have I come to heavenly Jerusalem? Well, we've seen it before in our studies of Hebrews. When you and I worship, we worship in spirit and in truth, and we are gathered, as it were, as one company, the universal church, worshiping and adoring Jesus Christ. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we are sitting together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus as born-again believers. When God quickens us, he translates us out of Adam and puts us into Christ. And therefore, notice Verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace he is saved. Now notice, And hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm as good as there. Why? Because God looks at me judicially, forensically, legally. He looks at me through Christ. And I am as good as sat there. Why? Because my federal head is Jesus Christ. Once my federal head was Adam, and I was lost. But I have been translated into Christ's kingdom. And as I worship with a newborn heart, I am sat together with Christ in heaven. This is why Paul says there to the Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, he says, but ye are come to Mount Sion. And that's why he he says in chapter 10, don't forsake the gathering of the saints, because, you know, if you just turn back there to Hebrews 10, verse 32, he reminds his hearers there how... As soon as they came to faith in Christ, they were persecuted by the Jews. And he says they were made a gazing stock. What they used to do with the Jews who became Christians is they used to round them up and mock them and say to them, you don't have a temple. The temple is ours. You don't have a high priest. We have a high priest, they would say. But we have a high priest, Christ. We have no need for an earthly high priest. The priesthood ended. There's one high priest. Hebrews 10.32 But call to remembrance, says the Apostle Paul, the former days in which after you were illuminated, that is your mind, you, you came to a knowledge of Christ, you were illuminated, you endured a great 
fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock. That word literally means they used to gaze upon them, and they used to mock them, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. He said, remember how you suffered when you first were illuminated, when you first came to the light. But then he says, you know, don't lose heart. Part of the the reason of the epistle to the Hebrews is to encourage them that they have better things than the things of the old. The things of the old, the priesthood, the sacrifices, were types and shadows, all pointing to Christ. They have the substance. And we are citizens of heaven. And we are sat in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Lift up your heart. You see, Christ, God sees us through him. We were once, we fell by imputation, didn't we? Adam's sin was laid to our account and we were dead in sins. And we were just like Adam. Running away until God came to him. Adam, where art thou? And God came to us and quickened us and brought us to him. You see, so the picture is here. The church together is one. The minute the saint dies on earth, where does he go? To his home. He goes to heaven. There's no other place for the child of God but heaven. The immediate sequel to death is what? Heaven. To see Christ, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord, says the Apostle Paul. So such an encouragement, isn't it? Christ, where is he now? As our head, as our high priest, as our prophet, as our king. He's in heaven. This is all fulfillment of Psalm 2 verse 6. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's what the father promised the son. And he has taken his rightful place now. And he ever lives to intercede for his people. You see this whole business over fighting over a plot of land in Jerusalem. It's pointless. Because when Christ comes, what's going to happen? Well, Peter tells us, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, Second Peter 3.10, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that therein shall be burnt up. It'll be the rejuvenation. It'll be a new heavens and a new earth. When Christ comes, he's not going to occupy Jerusalem. Believe me, that temple's not going to be grand enough for him and glorious enough for him. This present earth must pass away and all that are in it. And how on earth can ungodly and unsaved and unregenerate man stand before a glorious God and behold glorified saints. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So just to confirm, let me show you. Notice verse 2, what John sees in heaven. This is heaven. And here's the proof. Notice this as we follow on. 
It's important we, we really follow on from verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood in the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. Now, just remember, the 144,000 there, and they sing, as you'll see, a new song. But where do they sing it from? From heaven. Not down below. You ask the Jehovah's Witnesses, where are the 144,000? Some say they're both in heaven and on earth. Well, it can't be. And I heard a voice from heaven, verse 2, as the voice of many waters. Again, many waters. And by the way, let me say, out of the 144,000, there were those from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, aren't there? So these many waters are people from the nations of this world. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and the voice as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. It was a tremendous noise, but a soft, harped sound, a glorious sound. Verse 3, and they sang, sung as it were a new song. Where? Before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand. Now, let me just throw something in here. You see the elders and you see the hundred and forty-four thousand. They are one and the same. You can't imagine for a moment that the elders don't know the new song. Can you? You can't imagine that. The twenty-four elders are exactly part of these people. And who are they before? They before the four beasts, the cherubim, and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144 and 4,000. Now I can't imagine that there would be some special elect group amongst God's people that couldn't sing this song. I can't imagine that. So this is why we conclude that the 144,000 are also the 24 elders. Exactly so. And they sang. You see, what is the song? It's the song of the redeemed. You can't sing something really from the heart that you haven't experienced. These are them that have been redeemed, notice, from the earth, from this present world. Now, where is it? Again, it's in heaven. Because that's what we're told. Before the throne and before the beasts, the cherubim, and so on. So we come to the 144,000 who sing in heaven before the throne who were, notice, redeemed from among men. The Lord redeemed them, every one of them. And by the way, redeemed. They needed redeeming. Why? Because they were sinners. Some people suggest here, well, these were perfect people. Well, they can't be, because they had to be redeemed. They have to be saved. They have to be bought by the blood of Christ. So they are redeemed. They are not, as the Jehovah's Witnesses suggest, sinless people, people that have never sinned. They were redeemed from among men. Now I say this because you notice 
how they are described. Verse 4, these are they which are not defiled with woman, for they are virgins. Now, usually in the Bible, a virgin is a description of a woman. You wouldn't describe a man as a virgin usually in Scripture. But these are men. Because it, we're told that they haven't defiled themselves with women here. But it's speaking of men. This has nothing to do with gender. Okay, These are all Christians. We can't take it, if you were to take it in the literal sense. These are people that have never known a woman, never married a woman. These are them that have never told a lie. These are them that have never had a fault. No, these are them that have been redeemed. This is how the Lord sees them now. They are without fault. Christ is their righteousness. Now again, this is a vision. John sees this. It's a picture of God's people, the redeemed, who were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. Well, if you took this literally, first thing we'd say, only Israelites would be saved. Because remember in chapter 7, we're told a thousand from Levi, a thousand from Ishakar, a thousand from Judah, a thousand from Benjamin. You go right through. It would be literally Israelites. So no Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, no. It's not some special elect, but these are all who have been redeemed. All who have been redeemed. A spiritual Israel. That's who they are. If you just turn back to Revelation 7. Remember John, and this is the same 144,000, by the way. It's just symbolic of all spiritual Israel. Those who have received the circumcision of the heart. That is, they have been born again. Revelation 7, 4, and I heard, John hears the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, how were they sealed? Just interject that in for a moment. They were sealed by the Spirit. They were born again. They were quickened. Paul tells us that we are sealed unto the day of redemption by the Spirit of God. So he hears the number. Then, Revelation 7, 9, after this, I beheld, he saw. He heard the number was 144, but when he heard, when, sorry, when he beheld, when he saw, it was a number that no man could number. You notice that? And lower great multitude which no man can number. So it was symbolic, as we've seen of everyone that is redeemed from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palms in their hands. And we're told in the verse 13, these are they which came out of the, the great tribulation, verse 14. And they are arrayed in white robes. And uh, verse 14, and have washed their robes 
and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That is, of course, they have sin in this life, but daily they confess their sin. And the blood of Jesus Christ continues to cleanse them from a guilty conscience. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We don't walk around with a guilty conscience. Our relationship with God continues because we continue to confess and to profess Christ in our lives. These are the saints. And there is a righteousness imputed as they stand before God. He sees that they are without fault because he sees them through his Son. But in their lives, there is what we call righteousness imparted. They put away sin. If you just notice, we really come to the last point here. We've seen the Lamb. We've seen the number. We've looked at Mount Zion. That's the heavenly Mount Zion. We're sat in the heavenlies with Christ even now. We're citizens of heaven. But last of all, the Father's name on their foreheads. Now, if you remember, in chapter 13, the unregenerate have a mark, don't they? They have a mark of the beast, which is the mark of man, which is the number of man. And we said what that was. It's man without God. Man was made in, what, six literal days. And on the seventh, he rested with God. His maker, because God sanctified the day. And we are meant to keep the day of rest with God and to enjoy God, to come away. But that's not how the world lives. Those who do not love God, those who don't worship him, will always be six, 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 always coming short, never having God. No Father, no Son, no Holy Spirit. Man without God, not seven, seven, seven. Not complete, incomplete. But here, as John beholds the Lamb with his 144,000, they all have the mark of the Father on their foreheads. We thought in the previous chapter how those of the world have the mark of the beast on their foreheads and their hands. So what they think and what they do, that's their life, is man. No God. Empty. Vanity of vanities. Man was made to know God and to enjoy him forever. And those who are the lords, who are sealed with him, they have the mark of God on their foreheads. It's not a literal mark that you can see. But it is they, God is in their thoughts. God is in their thinking, but that is not true for the lost person. God, we read in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, is not in man's thought. But the child of God thinks of God and he loves God and he serves God and he honors God. 
You see, it's, it's very simple. It's very straightforward. There's nothing complex about this. We're not to look for chips and somehow, you know, somebody implanting a chip or some sort of barcode on you. People want that today. It's as simple as this. Those who are the Lord's think on him, and they that think on him will be with him. Will be with him forever. To have the mark of God on one's forehead is to be his. A mark is a sign, isn't it? Remember, the Jews in the Old Testament were to have a, the Lord said, bind thy word upon thy foreheads, upon thy frontlets, and upon thy arms. But the people took that literally and made their phylacteries. They thought, well, if I can just have a little box here, a leather box, Put the word of God there, well, that's good enough. If I can put the word in my forearm, that's good enough. You see, if it's in the heart, it'll be in the head, won't it? That's what we are to do. That's to have the seal of God. We're told earlier that God's people have a seal on them. So here's the thought as I close and try and make some application. What are your thoughts? Are your thoughts upon God? If you turn to Revelation twenty-two fourteen, you note there, and you could say, just like the Beatitudes, you remember in the Beatitudes there's eight of them. They are divine blessings, and it's what God's children are by the new birth. By being born again. But here, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. That's speaking about heaven. God's people do his commandments because they think about them, because they delight in his commandments. And that's the first question I would put to you. Has your heart been changed so that you delight in the law of God like Paul could say and like the psalmist could say? Where are your thoughts? Are your thoughts on Christ? Paul says, set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things, but on heavenly things where Christ is. One once said, if you study history, you will find that those did the most in this life thought most about the life to come. So true, isn't it? You look at some of these remarkable men of faith, how much they did for the Lord. You look at the life of George Mueller. You look at many of these people. Did tremendous things for the Lord. So, what's another thing? Do you have the seal, the, the name, the seal? Remember, it's sealed with the Spirit of God, isn't it? In uh, Revelation 12, uh, sorry, Revelation 
12, yes, verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. But also, if you notice in Revelation 7, verse 3, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God, of our God, in their foreheads. Now, it's the Spirit of God that seals the people because He puts His Spirit in their hearts. And if God is in our hearts, He will be in our heads. God changes the whole man, doesn't He? Paul tells us that we're sealed to the day of redemption of Jesus Christ by the Spirit. Therefore, he said, do not grieve the Spirit. He says in Ephesians 1.13, In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now notice, in whom also ye after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The day we believed is the day where we were changed. God put his spirit in us and we began to think differently and live differently. Now, what is the proof that we have God's name on our foreheads? Well, do we have the fruits of the spirit? Think of the fruits of the spirit. Well, we have them, don't we, in Galatians Chapter 5, the apostle says, Brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed of one another. In the verse 22, he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. It's joy in the Lord, by the way. And it's love, the Lord, isn't it? Long-suffering. You're long-suffering in this world. You're long-suffering toward other people. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now, again, remember I said there's righteousness imputed but there's also righteousness imparted. The Lord has put his seal upon his people, and you can see it just like the world has a mark on it. It thinks about this world, and it serves this world, and the God of this world. God's people think and serve the God above. They have a mark, but you can see it in the life. Don't go around looking for a mark, but look for the marks of the Spirit. That's what you and I are to look for in our own lives. The fruits of the Spirit. Meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the afflictions and the lusts, and so on. You see, God has not just saved us to go to heaven, but Paul tells us in Hebrews 12, 8, Hebrews 12.10, should I say, that we are partakers of his holiness. He has put his spirit in our hearts. And that is, by the way, in the context of chastisement. He says, God chastens them he loves. Why? So that we 
And because we are partakers of his holiness, we're called to be holy. Now, there are many things that we could apply, I suppose. But here's the thing. If we have God's mark upon us, we will overcome. We'll overcome our sin. But where do you need, first of all, you've got to think aright. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, you know, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, he tells us what our status is in Christ. That's what he does in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. He says, God has done all of this for you in Christ. He says, now therefore, walk worthy. So, as you look at this chapter 14, think of the Lamb. He's accomplished his salvation for his people. You are with him now. Nothing, Paul says in Romans 8, will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Death can't. Death will take us to his presence. So therefore, if you know you're going to heaven, live like it. Walk like it. You're struggling with sin. Ask God. You're lacking wisdom. Ask God. You're lacking grace. We all are. Ask God. Seek God. He wants you to walk worthy. Because, dear friends, there is a worthy Savior. He is worthy of all of our love, our praise, adoration, and our worship. How can the children of a king go around mourning and doubting? And how can we dishonor him in this life? Surely we can't. Can you dishonor such a one? While the beasts rage, can you dishonor him if he said, you're as good as there with me? The moment you die, you will actually be there in a more wondrous way than you are now. And we can never be more loved than we ever will be. God loves us perfectly now. We can never be more cared for now. We'll never be lost if we are the Lord's. We are his. Therefore, let us devotedly give ourselves to him. Let us give no place for the flesh. Let us honor him. Let us serve him with all the heart, with all the mind. Let us be overcomers. We are overcomers. Let us overcome our sin. Let us know the power of Christ. Let us know the power of his spirit in our hearts. That's why he's given us the spirit, to mortify the deeds of the body. Paul says, if ye by the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live, I mean live now, a better life, and you will live with him thereafter. Blessed are they who die in the Lord. Amen.